This is Attorney Greg Lois. I'm sitting here today with Steve Bedoya, Mark Packerel. Uh, we're here from Lois LLC, and today our topic of our webinar is liens and subrogation. Uh, our goal today is to help answer questions for people about liens and subrogation, and these are New York workers' compensation liens and how you get reimbursed and when you can subrogate. Um, today, we're hoping that by the end of this webinar, you, you can answer this question when you get it from your clients, your insureds, your locations. Hey, do I have the right to be reimbursed? If I do have the right to be reimbursed, how much money can I get back? And can I sue the claimant? Can I sue if the claimant doesn't sue? Okay, if my own employee doesn't bring a suit. Um, all right, so let's talk about that. I already introduced you guys. If you can see me waving my hands but you can't hear me, uh, please dial in if your uh, phone, uh, there's a phone alternative to using the, the speakers on your computer. That's in your handout. Uh, we're here today as part of our webinar series. This is every third Monday. Uh, we do New York, we do uh, New Jersey. It's usually the same topics on the fourth Monday. Uh, please remember this is just part of one of the many things that we do to try to keep our clients and this community up to date with what's going on. Um, my handbook comes out. If you haven't received a copy of my 2016 handbook, request it, please. Uh, we keep a website with over 900 articles, all up to date on workers' compensation. Obviously, we do these webinars. You're attending this webinar today, and we also do a newsletter. So we do a lot of outreach to try to uh, educate our community and our clients about changes in workers' compensation law. Um, today, uh, we're going to give you a uh, Basically an overview, 15 minutes or so. This is a very 30,000 feet overview of liens, reimbursement, and your right to uh, subrogate in New York. Um, I've got two experts with me. Uh, Mr. Bedoya wrote Chapter 18 of my book. Um, he is the credited author in there, uh, mainly on loss transfer litigation and lien reimbursement. Mr. Packles, a civil litigator here with us to talk about subrogation. So uh, without anything further from me, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Oh, just one reminder. This is a live webinar, as you can tell by our little technical uh uh, hiccups here as we get this thing started. Um, <laughs> please feel free to ask us questions as we go along. We can see the questions popping up here on our laptop, and we can answer them as we are uh, going through today's uh, webinar. Uh, we will have time for questions at the end. We've, this is the second session of this webinar. We've already done one today, and we had a lot of great questions this morning. Um, okay, so I'm going to uh, hand this off to Steve. All right, guys, so going back to why you guys are here today, um, all the housekeeping's done, um, what are you seeking to find out today? What do you guys want to find out? Um, do you have a right to reimbursement? How much should we get back? And can we sue if the claimant doesn't? These are the questions that you care about because it comes down to the bottom line, money. Now, first thing we want to know, is there a potential action here? Um, how do you find that out? Um, you, you ask, you do some investigation. Uh, is there an actual tortfeasor? Uh, did the claimant file a lawsuit against someone? Um, and was the employee's injury the result of someone else's negligence? Um, these are all questions, threshold questions, that your attorney is going to immediately be looking for for you guys to answer. And it's kind of something that we're going to need to proceed on reimbursement as well as subrogation. Um, the facts of the loss are important. The facts of the loss are the case, guys. So it's always the stuff we're going to be looking for. Um, you have situations similar to this. Uh, look at him going. Oop, there he goes. He fell. <laughs> all right, guys. So um, what do we want to know about that? Who owned the garage? who maintain a garage, and who may be at fault. So this is our employee, uh, and we're just basically saying, is, is there anybody else that could possibly be negligent besides us here? Right, absolutely. And these are the questions we want to be going through, and we're going to be very annoying about those questions. But in any event, when we look at about reimbursement, um, let's be clear, reimbursement is separate from uh, subrogation. Uh, Mark Packer will be discussing subrogation later on. Um, 
in my context, we're talking about the Section 29, that's a very specific part of the law. It's a it's part of the statute carved out to protect your interests as a carrier. Um, and something that's very exciting about Section 29 is self-executing. Um, what exactly does that mean? Oops, sorry, guys. It means it's self-effecting in a sense that you don't really have to do anything. Um, it's made by statute, and it's yours automatically. Um, in that sense, guys, what we tend to do is put all parties on notice as soon as possible as, as a right of course. We think it's uh, smart in terms of documenting everything, and it prevents a he said, she said later on. Um, what we also do, as Greg clicked on ahead before, so you can, now you can click. Sorry, my God. All right. <laughs> we can, hands off. We can monitor a civil claim as well. Um, we're on this website fairly often. I'm sure you guys are, too, inputting all the information and kind of looking around to see, okay, uh, has anything been filed? Right. And these are, just to go back one slide, um, e-case is how we keep track of uh, the workers' compensation claims. Um, and that, that is the court's system for keeping track of workers' compensation. New York... You're I mean, it's like a comment. I, I clicked, but you clicked. All, right. All right. New York also has an electronic docketing system for civil cases, and that is called eCourts. And that's the, uh, what's up here. And eTrack, which enables you to track just one case every time it's listed for hearing everything that's filed in the case. So that's what we just quickly scanned through before. Sure, guys. And now, um, how much do we get back? And, you know, instead of giving you guys all the confusion stuff, we, we get it all back, minus the attorney's fees and costs as per the Kelly decision. Um, there's sometimes a little more of a complicated issue here um, when the amount that we're seeking to get back exceeds the amount of the recovery. In that type, in that type of case where you're going to be looking to take a reasonable uh, chunk of it, um, the attorney's fees and costs are, are what's held back. At, at this point, um, you're entitled to your – it's usually about a one-third, and it's a dangerous rule. We'll, we'll get to it in a bit. But in essence, you have to take back and assume the part of the uh, claim that the attorney and the uh, cost involved had – what you have to do is take some portion of that so that the claimant makes sure that he knows he can go ahead and move forward with the case. Um, it's the same thing with the future credit abyssal. Now, moving on with the maximizing the reimbursement, how do we get more money? How is it something that we can go ahead and do? Now, Greg and I have gone back and forth with how we deal with this, and there's a couple of things that happen. They come in and they try to go ahead and get a lot more money, and we on your end want to get you a lot more money as well. Right, so, so this is a situation where you definitely have a lien. Um, they have recovered at law, or they are trying to recover at law. So we are the workers' comp carrier. We've paid money out. We're trying to get our money back, as Steve just adequately or perfectly said. We're entitled to everything back minus their cost of litigation. But what typically happens is you get contacted um, by that third-party attorney representing the plaintiff. And that's when we say, whoa, stop. Um, we wait for an offer to settle a third-party claim. Uh, we want to go ahead and make sure that we get some sort of offer so we're not negotiating against ourselves. Because if we start negotiating against ourselves, the plaintiff's attorney turns on and said, okay, well, we're not going to pay the claimant uh, all this money. We're not going to pay the medical people any, any of their money. So in that type of situation, we always want to wait till we get a settlement offer. Well, the, exactly, well, just to be very careful, when we say we, we're kind of standing in the place of the plaintiff. Correct. We want the plaintiff to get a settlement offer from whoever it is that they're suing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the next thing they try to do is they threaten to abandon the claim. Um, that's one we don't mind because uh, we can always jump in and say, okay, fine, abandon the claim. We can handle it better anyway. Um, that's something we all kind of go high-fiving around saying we can take care of this case now, right? And at this point, there's there's also the one-third rule. Again, guys, that's what I was referring to before. Um, that's not a thing. Uh, it's not something that you know uh, people tend to use. They, they, as a quick reference, say, oh, can everyone do a third, a third, a third? 
but it's not beneficial to you until we go ahead and know exactly how much has been spent and how much money has been dealt with in connection with the fees and the costs because you might be entitled to more money than simply agreeing to a third and you might be cheating yourself out of that extra money if you just agree to this third. Yep, and that's one of those things that really annoys me because you know, plaintiff's counsel will call up a risk professional, an adjuster, and just start yelling at them, hey, we always do a third, a third, a third. You should just accept a third of your money back and, and waive everything else and compromise. And yeah, it's true that a lot of cases do settle for a third, a third. I mean, sometimes that's what we do just to get the thing through. But it's not every case. Right. And you absolutely don't have to agree to that. Um, that's their first negotiation tactic. Uh, and it just, you know, sometimes when I get calls from adjusters, and I know you do too, and they say, well, they said it's always a third, a third, a third. And you have to wait, 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 time out. That's what they want. Um, right. You know, that's just their first sort of argument against us. So there is no such thing that's not in the statute. That's not law. That's not even from a case. That's just sort of rule of thumb. Right. And, guys, I talked about a couple of these, but there's some other uh, situations we can try to maximize. Um, I know Mark has had situations where he just might have better uh, relationships with some of these firms, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, again, as this slide indicates, in this situation, we are fighting against our instincts and we are playing team uh, teamwork with the claimant because we want to bolster their claim in the civil arena uh, so that they can maximize that recovery, which also helps us as well. So, uh, again, you have to kind of go against what we have ingrained in ourselves to uh, to minimize their claim more in the workers' compensation court, but instead uh, help them bolster up their claim uh, to maximize their recovery, which means just more money in the pool to divide up. Yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're like... We're friends with the plaintiff at this point, right? It's I mean, weird. It's always weird. It's, it's it feels, it feels so dirty. It feels so gross. I don't like it. Uh, but, you know, this is a situation where they're, they're prosecuting this plaintiff's claim. And, you know, I've actually actually recommended um, what experts they should use, right? And, and where the, maybe the plaintiff's counsel isn't so experienced, that might be something we would do. I've also had plaintiff's counsel approach me and say, hey, um, it's going to cost me $10,000 to get this you know, accident reconstruction specialist. But you guys could stand to recover a million dollars if I, you know, really hit the lottery on this case. Would you kick in some kind of these towards these costs of litigation? And in very rare instances, that type of thing sometimes can make sense uh, from a, from our standpoint. And yeah, and from a more basic standpoint, we also have access to a lot more information on our end because since we're doing the workers' comp issue, we have access to what happened first. We have some deposition transcripts of whatever the claim is testifying to. So that's helpful to the attorney as well in handling that issue as well. Yeah, I mean, they should know what happened on our workers' comp case, but the truth is they don't always. Um, and, and we also get really good feedback or a lot of good information right from the, the, the location or the insured who will speak to us as their comp carrier a lot, maybe a lot better than they would speak to a plaintiff's discovery demand. Well, and another thing to keep in mind, it's not always the same attorney who's prosecuting the, work, prosecuting the workers' compensation claim as the civil case. A lot of times uh, the claimant, the employee, bifurcates and, and splits. Especially and, and makes true, sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some people, some attorneys are more uh, accustomed to the work, workers' compensation form versus the civil arena. So sometimes they might not have all the same information as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So at this point, I'm going to hand it off to Mr. Packer, who's uh, going to handle okay. subrogation. All right. Subrogation. What is it? Other than being just a fancy legal word, uh, it really means you're standing uh, in the shoes of another person. In this situation, uh, you are standing in the shoes of our of your employee. Uh, and that really means that you can assert uh, claims on your own behalf in his name. Now, uh, again, as the claim says, yes, we can subrogate. What does that mean? Uh, if there is a workplace injury and the employee files a workers' compensation claim, uh, but 
they uh, don't immediately file their third-party action in the civil court, uh, we can. We can take the advantage on our own and go ahead in there and, and prosecute the case ourselves. Uh, and again here, uh, some of the potential uh, options to explore see who could potentially be a third-party tortfeasor is, again, in this situation, who owned the hallway, who maintained that hallway, who might be at fault. Now, in the rare situation where the claimant says, I'm not suing anybody, uh, and that comes up in situations where the individual might not want to sue where the accident occurred for a personal relationship or some other business relationship, but they just don't want to go after that mom and pop business or for whatever reason. So we can do that, and a lot of times we will do that uh, just because the employee doesn't want to uh, start that, that fight, if you will. We absolutely will. So we'll be the bad guys, huh? Absolutely. Uh, I have a black hat in the car that I wear and I walk <laughs> in, and it's, it's awesome. Okay, so what can we subro? Um, now, in, in this situation, we can obviously uh, seek subrogation and get reimbursement for the monies that we expend during the course of the treatment and for the indemnity payments. Now, also, uh, you have to keep in mind that, you know, let's say, unfortunately, the employee uh, in the course of his treatment, there's a medical malpractice claim that, claim that arises or the legal malpractice uh, claim enhances the recovery as well. We can subrogate against that uh, as well. Um, and again, it makes sense from a logical standpoint if the employee uh, unfortunately has some medical malpractice, which exacerbates his injuries, and that will then increase and enhance the workers' compensation value. We, of course, should have a right to reimbursement and subrogation in that context as well. Now, there's also the rare occasion where we are actually defending uh, a subrogation claim, which is brought by the third-party tortfeasor, and this is uh, dealt with here in the last final bullet point there. Uh, in those situations, the third-party tortfeasor can identify the employer and, and really the carrier uh, for purposes of contribution. But that only arises in a very narrow set of circumstances and when there's a grave injury involved. Which is basically death or amputation, very yeah. significant injuries. Correct. Uh, notice. All right. Yes, we obviously have to put the uh, employee on notice of our intention uh, to subrogate. And again, this is a very typical and very easy uh, notice requirement. You just send a letter, certified mail or personal uh, service to the employee, advising them of, the, of your intention to file the subrogation claim. And quite frankly, there's not really anything that the employee can do to stop you or frustrate your efforts to go ahead and do that. Now, again, this is our favorite slide of the afternoon. <laughs> Can we intervene? I spent a lot of time on this slide, Mark. It what is, do you it mean? Is. Fantastic insight right there. It depends. Yes. So sometimes <laughs> yes, sometimes no. Law school in a bucket, guys. It depends. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, $100,000 for law school for that right there. Can we intervene? Uh, yes, we're having a little bit of fun with it, but everything is very fact-sensitive. But for the most part... I think what's meant by this title here is, can we intervene? That implies that we're not a party to the lawsuit already. So, and that's obvious. Now, if the claimant, if the employee has already gone ahead and filed a lawsuit for personal injury in the civil arena, he, he or she is technically pursuing and protecting our interest with respect to their damages claim. And they actually want our lien numbers to put on the blackboard. So they want to know how much money we have spent for medical treatment and indemnity payments. Now, so, before, before you move on, why don't you tell everybody what you mean by put on the blackboard? Of course, yes. Uh, and again, it's all boardable or what you can blackboard. That means when you are in the courtroom and you're making your presentation to the judge and actually to the jury, uh, 
literally a blackboard, what you can put up there. And everybody likes to write and have a, you know, a whiteboard or anything like that. And it's really the dollar amounts. You, the plaintiff's attorney will elicit through the employee, you know, very simple questions. Did you treat? Yes. Did you incur expenses? Yes, yes, yes. And then the plaintiff's attorney would like to put that $100,000 number up there because the plaintiff's attorney, when they're arguing for the damages award, they're not typically allowed to ask for a dollar amount from the jury. However, what they can do is throw big numbers out there under the hope and the expectation that the jury is just going to multiply it by three or some factor right. like that. So if you've spent $150,000 for medical treatment and made indemnity payments of another $50,000, that plaintiff's attorney is going to want to put $200,000 in the ear of the juror. We're then hopefully going to multiply that by some factor of three, ten, whatever. Right. And I think to themselves, like this this injured plaintiff already owes this amount of money. Yeah. So we gotta give him at least that. That's it. Yeah. That's it how the, they think. Exactly. It sets the floor because what they say to the jury is at a minimum, he's already been damaged to the tune of hundred thousand dollars, whatever the lien amount is going to be. And the the jury will hear that any recovery that the jury gives to Mr. Employee will be uh, compromised by that lien, meaning that's going to be carved out and ultimately sent out to us for reimbursement. Purposes. And if you guys ever wonder on, on the workers' comp cases, why is it that you can't settle these cases that have a third-party case attached to it? That's the reason. The reason being they want to pump up the amount of their medicals in order to make their third-party case look that much better. Yeah. So just as an aside and how it applies to a third-party claim. Okay. Uh, now, again, we've been painting this picture that it's a fantastically awesome experience to subrogate. There are some limitations against it. Uh, if the employee has recovered only first-party benefits from their own personal carrier, whether it was for wage continuation loss or, or something to that effect, we're not allowed to uh, impinge upon that recovery. So if it's first-party benefits, we can't subrogate or get reimbursed from that. And the same rule applies if there are UIM benefits or UM, which is underinsured and uninsured uh, motorist benefits. Um, and again, the limitations uh, period there is just one year plus 30 days uh, to file the suit. Now, um, again, what problems could arise? Now, if, again, if it's a situation where the employee has not filed their own claim uh, in the civil arena, we actually filed the complaint ourselves, uh, we still might have uh, difficulties getting cooperation from the employee by offering testimony or uh, providing documentation or signatures or depositions, what have you. Um, and again, so sometimes that's actually when we have to jump in ourselves and either take away some of the responsibility from the claimant's attorney, who's not doing a good job themselves, and we can do it better so we can actually intervene again, like that slide said, depends. That would be a situation <laughs> where, where we do. Uh, and again, another potential problem is if the claimant is not represented and they're prosecuting the workers' compensation claim on their own, again, they're not going to understand that they need to file a lawsuit in the civil arena to get us paid back. And recognize, guys, in this type of situation, the claimants aren't exactly really going to help us out either. I mean, they're looking at it as, you know, why am I not getting any money back? And our, our interests are aligned with the insurance company at this point, not the claimant. So we won't be getting them all this money back. We're just going to be getting our lien back. So, right. And again, it does raise that interesting uh, duality there where in the workers' compensation court, we're not always seeing eye to eye as to what treatment they should get and what their, what their case might be worth. But then we're in the civil court where, you know, all sorts of hugging and kumbaya <laughs> and we're on the same page and you're very, very hurt. But well, again, yeah. you, don't, you, don't, you don't reserve the right to – you don't foreclose yourself from completely hitting the undo button when you're back in the comp court. So – uh, statute of limitations, again, this is another very, very straightforward slide. It's three years. Uh, it's three years from the date of the loss. Now, I think that brings us to the most important slide of the afternoon. Questions? Okay. So 
Let's take a look at the questions. If you haven't typed in your question yet, type it in now. Uh, the first question we have here today, and right, actually right now, here's the only question we have. Oh this is from Pamela. No, this is good. I mean, I think we did such a good job. Nobody even had any questions. That's awesome. Okay, she's saying, um, guys, can you please review subrogation potential when it involves an auto accident? Uh, typical question. And basically what we have here is a workers' compensation employee. Our employees injured at work. Let's imagine it arises out of and in the course of employment. So we've got a compensable loss. Delivery. It involves a motor vehicle accident. Uh, and they now have a third-party claim, a uh, civil claim, uh, arising out of this motor vehicle accident. And the answer, the question Pamela has is, can you please review the subro potential when involved in auto accident? So, Steve, don't look at Mark. <laughs> well, I, 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 I thought this was his, the subrogation and whatnot. So. <laughs> because this gets into our fun first-party benefits questions that we were talking about earlier today. So Right. So when you have an issue where there's an auto accident, there's this thing what's called a loss transfer statute. Um, and it's the first 50000 um, You, it's, it's arbitrated outside and it's mediated in, in the American Arbitration Association. Um, after that point, you're not entitled to recover any more than 50000 That's when we get into the weird world of subrogating and, and go ahead and recovering that amount of money. And that's where Mr. Packer will come in. And again, it does actually depend on the fact pattern. Um, if it's a motor vehicle accident, uh, that if it's, a, if it's a straightforward rear-end collision, you know who caused the damage and they're identifiable, then it's the typical subrogation route where you intervene or your lien is uh, prosecuted by the employee or, or by your attorneys when they intervene in the case. If, however, uh, it is a motor vehicle accident that we mentioned before, which is uh, an un- uninsured motorist, which is a phantom vehicle, like a hit-and-run situation or somebody hits you and takes off and you can't establish who is at fault, uh, then you won't be able to, to uh, subrogate. That, that was one of the rare exceptions that we mentioned before. And in a similar situation, if it's an underinsured motorist claim, let's say, for example, you are driving along and you get rear-ended by somebody who has a, a basic policy or, or minimal uh, coverage, uh, maybe a $15,000 limit or so, uh, you would not be able to uh, infringe upon the first party UIM action that they assert against their own carrier. So again, you wouldn't really be able to go after it in that situation. But I think what you're what you're asking about, Pam, was just a straightforward he said, she said uh, intersection yeah, accident. So you answered the question in the most complicated way possible. You answered it for the commercial vehicle, but the typical, the the more most common situation that we see is. Uh, it's a motor vehicle accident. It's not a commercial vehicle, which is mm-hmm. what you're talking about. Right. And in that circumstance, um, you do not have a right to be get reimbursement for the first $50,000 of benefits, which were paid in lieu of first-party benefits. So that's where the workers' comp carrier pays for medical and indemnity. That first $50,000 is carved out under the insurance law, Section 5105, which you referred to earlier. So the typical car accident case uh, involving a workers' comp claimant the first $50,000 we're not allowed to recover unless there's, as you said, commercial vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in, and then you talked to the other, the other exemption, which is UIM coverage, which is really coverage you're buying on yourself. Okay, Pamela, I hope that helps you. Um, we got a question now from Joe. Uh, this is a great question. Joe, can we file a subrogation claim for malpractice if the claimant does not wish to pursue such a claim? So here's a circumstance, and I'll let me just set this up a little bit more because these are good, good short questions. But let me let me build this up. So uh, the most common context we see this in is a workers' compensation claimant who gets medical care that we authorize and provide. 
uh, the workers' comp claimant gets medical care and he gets a terrible result, or we see something that looks like per se malpractice. For example, he gets sewn up and they leave the sponges uh, that the surgeon was using inside the claimant. And the question Joe has is, can we file a separation claim for malpractice if the claimant does not wish to pursue that claim? Mr. Packerel, it's on you. I would like to say yes, uh, Alex. My answer would be yes. <laughs> for $400? Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, and again, that's what we were talking about before. Either in a medical malpractice context where the doctor just goofs and causes you know further harm or amputates the wrong leg or any of the horrible things you hear. Uh, and also in the legal malpractice context where the workers' compensation attorney or the attorney handling a civil claim botches it up to the employee's detriment. And again, we can certainly intervene or file our own subrogation action if the employee does not want to. And again, this might also dovetail into the situation where the claimant, the employee, doesn't want to sue their doctor because it's their uncle Bob or the lawyer is their neighbor and they don't want to have that friction. Again, like my law professor used to say, so sad, too bad. We'll <laughs> file the claim. We'll go legal after it. Uh, and again, we'll be the bad guy. Uh, and then the, the, the employee can say, it's not my fault. The insurance company is doing it. And again, if they need to hide behind us, that's fine because we can prosecute the claim to protect our lien. And then that gives them some cover. Then they can sort of, you know, advance their own claim as well. And I write to prosecute makes sense because at the end of the day, because of the accidents that but for test they tell us about in law school, um, we're paying out for all those additional things that are happening. We're paying out for additional medicals. So we need to have an avenue to recover. Okay. Uh, next question. And this is a very simple yes, no question. Depends. Uh, <laughs> Do you go back to that slide? I'm going to pay for you go back slide, that slide. <laughs> okay, so this is Megan. She says, uh, guys, so in summary, a workers' compensation insurer can subrogate against a tortfeasor even if an employee does not file a third-party civil suit. Yes, even, even yes, 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 yes. Okay, uh, next. Steve, uh, would you ever recommend that we sell our lien? And I think what he's asking here is um, – uh, uh, taking that potential lien and, and I guess putting it off to uh, an attorney who would uh, recover that on a contingency. I presume that's what he's talking about. Um, I, I haven't seen that done. I do know that some bulk litigation practices will take all of the subro for like, for example, like uh, a large insurer will have a subrogation program where they're just sending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases to uh, attorneys who are accepting this massive subrogation program on a contingency basis for the entire program. Uh, I've seen statistics that say something between 16 and 22% of all uh, motor vehicle cases would benefit from some kind of subrogation. So, yeah, I think that's done on a very large scale. And Steve asks a second question, a follow-up question. Um, uh, guys, how does future credit or holiday work in recoveries that are made by the injured employee? And this is essentially abyssal question. So, Steve. Well, so the future, so when you're talking about the actual future recoveries and all that, um, they're hard to calculate, and that's what the Bissell Court kind of said, right? How are we supposed to figure out those future benefits and how much they're worth? Um, and, and in essence, it, they decided it's not fair for the, have the carrier try to figure it out. So in that, and I don't want to get too case law on that one, but in this case, what happened is for every time the claimant had some sort of uh, medical work done or anything like that, they had an equitable share of what they would pay out. So um, every case is going to be fairly, like, different. You're going to have situations where um, you might have to carve out something uh, with the other party in general, but in these types of situations, it's best to kind of look at 
the amount you're going to have and also try to close out the case by um, trying to negotiate with all the parties as well. Right. So that holiday, typically, the circumstances where the third-party recovery, the civil recovery, is so large that the it completely subsumes our lien. And then going forward, even though we might be on the hook for ongoing uh, benefits, particularly indemnity, uh, the idea is we're not paying them. There's a holiday because it's been our recovery is going to be so massive. Uh, and Bissell really talks about medical costs. So ongoing medical care, it's unknowable. And so in that case, they sort of said, well, we're going to pay out, you're going to pay your equitable proportion of medical costs going forward. It happens to be about a third of those equitable costs as they move forward. All right. Joe says, thanks. I guess we answered his question. Um, okay. So Brian is giving me a long question here. We've got two minutes left. So I'm going to skip you, Brian. We'll answer you over email. Um, and here's Lee. So we can take a malpractice or legal suit on behalf of the claimant. What is the time once we can do this? One year plus 30 days from what date? So that's an interesting question because in the uh, subrogation context, one of the limitations on bringing the subrogation suit is you can't bring it immediately. Uh, you don't get to bring the suit right at the time of the date of loss. Uh, you've got to wait one year to elapse. Then you provide notice to the claim. It has to be certified mail or personal service. And then you've got to wait 30 more days, right? And that's to give them plenty but, of time. No, but also I think what he's talking about here is the date of loss is actually be different because the date of right, loss right. for the malpractice incident or the claim is when that doctor... And it could be five years yeah. past the original yeah. date of loss. Yeah. Again, this is another instance where the answer is going to be it depends um, because it's going to depend when the malpractice uh, either occurred or if it's a medical situation or even an illegal malpractice case, it could be when you learned of it or should have learned of it. Um, so again, that, that really could extend the time in which you can file the lawsuit uh, by a lot. Okay. All right. It's 3.30. We're now been into 30 minutes. Uh, thank you very much for attending and participating. Uh, if there's any other questions, we'll try to respond to you over email. And uh, thanks for coming today.